Hi everyone, Ben Eisner here. Welcome to another episode of Knitted Heart, where I talk with endlessly curious masters of their craft about their passions, professions, and their shared hope to bring unity, reconciliation, and a reframing of public discourse through their work. In today's episode, I speak with poet and Trappist monk, Brother Paul Quenin. At age 79, Brother Paul has lived a life of contemplative silence at Our Lady of Gethsemane Monastery deep in the knobbed woods of rural Kentucky since he was 18 years of age. The lens from which Paul views life always sends me home pregnant with renewed buoyancy and celebration of the seemingly small and typically unnoticed whisperings in life that are gently inviting us to stop and absorb their wisdom. A living paradox that keeps on giving? It's the useless details we overlook in pursuit of what most of us call useful or profitable that Brother Paul reminds us are the true agents of inner transformation, joy, and reckless love. And if that isn't cool enough, Paul lived with and studied under my absolute favorite author, Thomas Merton, for 10 years. I could definitely dedicate an entire episode about the six degrees of separation we all share with Thomas Merton, but that may only attract the uber nerds like myself. And regardless of your philosophy about life, I invite you to be wide open and awake to the nuance and poetry that radiates from Brother Paul's being. After all, we're all made of the same stuff. I am you, and you are we. And with that, I'm honored to introduce you to my dear friend, Brother Paul Quenin. You ready to go? I'm yeah. ready to go. Okay. Holy, uh, wow, it, it's great to see you. Well, good seeing you too. You don't look much different. Really? Well, likewise. You, yeah. You're kind of, you've got a timeless face, man. I, you, uh, you never change. <laughs> I'll, I'll just live forever. Yep, you, you will. Brother Paul Quinnen, thank you so much for, for doing this. You're welcome. I consider you a special friend because whenever I feel the need to just show up at your monastery, <laughs> I, can, I can just show up unannounced. and I, I turn around and there you are. <laughs> it's amazing. But it's also the thing that I am just so enchanted with is the the silence and the expanse that you live and absorb every single day, all day, every day. You leave so much room for kind of just what's happening in the moment to lead where it needs to go and... I just love showing up there because there's never a plan. And that's just part of the, uh, I guess, the archetype uh, of a trickster that a monk, you know, can play because you just show up and it's almost like you don't know either, but you actually do know. Well, yeah, just go with the flow and, and it turns out uh, better than you expected. Exactly. Okay, well, can you just give me a context? Where are you right now? I'm in my office. It's on the second floor. I can look out and see Rowan's Knob in the distance and the, the, mount, the hills and the trees and the a meadow. It's a wonderful space. Wow. And it's a, it's a pretty private space too. And then if I uh, want to do some reading and get some fresh air, I open the windows and sit on the, the windowsill, which is that wide. And so I can easily sit uh, right in the, with a window open. I've been thinking about just your existence as of late, just with this COVID-19 pandemic and 
kind of connecting the dots with Psalm 91, you every night, is it Compline? Compline is pretty much what you, you prayed Psalm 91 before you go to bed every night. Is that right? How have you seen any connection between Psalm 91 and oh, yeah. what the world is facing? Right. <laughs> yeah. No plague will approach you. You know, that, that's one of the lines of it. Uh, you will not fear the terrors of the night, nor the terrors of, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the plague that prowls in the darkness, nor the scourge that lays waste at noon. So I've been saying that for the last uh, 62 years, every evening, and uh, I never imagined that uh, I would actually see a plague. Uh, it hasn't gotten into the monastery, fortunately, but we're being very careful, and we have an empty stall between each monk, you know, and the, and the next monk. Um, so we're keeping social distance. Fortunately, we don't have to wear masks yet. Uh, nobody has gotten there. Well, because usually you have like either retreatants or the abbey is open yeah. to people to come in. Is it just closed off to the rest of the world officially? That's all finished for the moment. No retreatants, no, uh, no public at mass. In a certain sense, this could be the best thing that happened for people. Uh, it gives them an opportunity, which maybe they actually have wanted for a long time to actually just, you know, make an extended retreat. Um, I would love to be able to spend a whole month or six weeks or more uh, at the Hermitage. Uh, that's not likely to happen. Um, there's something parallel happening here. Um, but, you know, um, in, in a way, I'm trained for it. But a lot of people are not trained to handle this much solitude. And so it's a challenge. Uh, um, it can even be uh, a suffering for many people. It, it takes courage. Uh, you know, you have to uh, um, come to terms with yourself in a new way you haven't had to before, perhaps. I would find it very stale if I couldn't, uh, you know, continue the work that I do, which is in the kitchen. Uh, you know, I, I spend four hours a day cooking. And um, <clears throat> the Desert Father said that um, um, when, when you're faced with boredom, and with the staleness and akshadiya, as they called it, um, that the best solution to that is to do some work. And mm -hmm. that may be something as simple as weaving baskets. Mm -hmm. uh, even if you can find some just kind of mon routine work. Monotony work is better than just mental monotony. Mm. It's, it, you know, counterbalances the body gets engaged, the mind can be, get either disengaged or engaged as you're doing a simple task. This is such a constant reality for you, Brother Paul, but it's so interesting that I think all of my deepest moments of consolation or just comfort or inspiration creatively come in silence. And I'm afraid we still don't leave enough room for it. Well, I think you have to uh, leave room for it. Uh, it won't come. Uh, it may pass you by. And I feel that, I mean, often when uh, um, I have a day off and I know I have, you know, extra dose of time, that's when a poem will begin. Because uh, subconsciously I know I'll have time to work on it. 
And if I don't have time to work on it, if I'm going to have to go right into activity, um, it'll pass me by. I don't, I don't disinvite it, but it just knows it's disinvited. And so uh, uh, it may not, uh, you know, come my way. It just may abide its time. And then uh, I got time, so here's, here's an opportunity. And, and I, that happened this morning. I, it's been a long time since I've been, written a poem. I'm kind of in a, uh, a fallow period. I hope it's fallow. Fallow is good for a field. Um, I, I feel like now I'm kind of stymied when it comes to writing poetry. But uh, fortunately, one came this morning. You want to hear it? Oh, absolutely. Okay, here's the, uh, I, I had, took me about an hour to work it over, you know, write it and then rewrite it. Um, it's called Psalmody, just what we've been talking about. Hmm. Two doves back and forth say, this is life, this is life making morning soft. They only exist for this sound, a sound making our sad world softer. Choir monks back and forth recall psalms of dread, of bliss, insisting that this sounds the truth of life. Enough they only exist for truth that stays as one by one they fade into truth sounding softly of a kindlier place. Hmm. And that, that's all written in 575 five scansion, you know, as you might see, mm -hmm. like the typical haiku. Do you feel like your poems kind of hit you like a bolt of lightning all of a sudden? And it's like you're kind of jerked clean out of the moment. And it's like, yep, this is it. And you just ride that wave. Or is it this mosaic that kind of pieces itself together as you go throughout your day or a series of events? Or well, Usually it kind of comes as a, a innuendo, you know, a suggestion, you know, a thought that um, then if I have time, I can develop, uh, it, you know, it looks, sounds like a fertile thought, you know, a good thought. Um, sometimes I just have to, to start it. And then the next stage of the poem suggests itself as I go along. Um, it's good to, to have an idea ahead of time. Now, you know, two things, you don't want to know too much ahead of time what you're going to write, because it's good to be surprised by a poem. If you're not surprised by it, nobody else is going to be surprised either. You, if you have a preconceived idea, it all gets pretty predictable. Uh, but then, on the other hand, you don't want to put something down you haven't really thought. Um, it's it's to, it's just a, not a matter of uh, putting out words to fill out a scan of some sort. This director, Joan Darling, was just talking about how truth in art always manifests itself when an artist is willing to kind of put themselves out there, kind of hanging out there in the wind without any knowledge of whether or not it's going to be good or if they're going to land, you know, it's yeah. activates something in whether, I don't know if it's trust, I don't know, but it really spoke to me. Because when we have everything kind of laid out how we think it's going to go and I have this planned out and I'm going to say this and then I'm going to do that. 
Yeah. Um, there's kind of this uh, livelihood and uh, kind of truth that kind of lives between the lines in any poem that kind of gets lost. I don't know if that resonates with you and anything that you kind of put yourself out there in terms of creating your art or your, your poetry or your, your photography. Well, I think the, uh, the art has to create itself. I mean, that, that's why it's so important to do revisions uh, because I'll have a, you know, I have some notion of uh, what I'm saying, what I want to say, and and it can it flows along just on its own initial momentum, perhaps. Mm-hmm. But then you come back and you look it over, and you realize that you didn't quite get it on target the way you mm-hmm. thought you did on the first take. Sometimes, I I don't. Uh, it, the first take is not always what God does. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you, 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 you work with what God gives you, uh, you know, you, God gives it to you and then you work with it mm. uh, because uh, I think the, the uh, clue to revision is that uh, the poem has to become more of what it is. Mm. Or the poem should become more true to its initial inspiration. Uh, you, the words that you were putting out weren't necessarily the most precise mm. or the, the best sounding ones. Um, I always s- sound something out loud as I'm re- revising. As I say it out loud, I begin to realize maybe in the first place it's, it's not speakable. Mm-hmm. You know, it's hard to say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it should flow, it should be easy to say. And then I find that I could have used a better word mm-hmm. or there could have been more assonance in it. Emily Dickinson says that uh, witchcraft was hung in history, but nature and I found witchcraft enough around us every day. <laughs> oh, <laughs> wow. But you know, the unpredictable, I, I found that in, in writing my memoir, I wasn't sure I wanted to write it. Hmm. And, uh, this is, uh, you probably haven't seen it yet, but here's uh, what, uh, was published by Ave Maria Press. Wow. The Praise of the Useless Life. Praise of the Useless Life. And uh, I, was, I wasn't sure I wanted to write it, but I thought, well, I'll just, I'll just sit down and start trying. The title alone is award-winning. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, after after the title, it's all anti-climax. It's <laughs> It's like, there it is. It's catchy. No, it's really good. Help me just kind of go a little deeper on on that kind of uh, paradox of a praise for the useless life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, that's uh, what are monks for? I mean, what do monks do? Well, you know, we we, uh, work and we pray and we read and there's no evident uh, benefit we have for the world. Um, and yet, um, the purpose of life is life itself. So I did a follow-up on that with a, a book of poems came out a year later called Amounting to Nothing. So here's the first poem. I mean, I had to explain the title somehow. And so the first poem goes like this, Mad Monk's Life Ambition. Sorry, monk that I am, I never amounted to nothing. <laughs> Did someone lay uh, a jinx and say, you'll never amount to nothing? How sad. 
since I took nothing as my monastic goal. I still don't amount to nothing, still think I'm something. I hardly amount to a hill of beings, but this already is too much of something. Whatever might you mount to amount to nothing? Where is that magical mountain? Where that reared agility to climb a hill of humus, humility so grounded it ascends by descending? A humility that does not know it is a virtue. When I find it, if I ever do, comparing something with nothing will cease. Hmm. Any measure or judgment of my own itself amounts to nothing. Which, ironically, can be everything. Well, yes. I think that's uh, that's the point is to empty yourself out and then let let the spirit flow in or let the universe flow in mm. for that matter. It's like there's this there's this great interior space uh, that um, we are blocked off from and we block ourselves off from it and yet it is the uh, it, it's the great unlimited what Emily Dickinson calls a finite infinity. Hmm. Um, and uh, that's, uh, that is my finiteness, the limitation of what I am, which is a threshold, a doorway into the unlimited. Hmm. And uh, if, 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 my, if I open my heart to it, the unlimited speaks for itself. And it may speak in very small ways, or it may simply speak as, you know, a vastness that I cannot really, I, I, I'm not equal to. And that's part of the, the, the dryness of the life, I think. Uh, it comes to the point where you're really not quite, you find out you're not capable of living up to uh, the the um, the unlimited deity, mm. to, uh, which which we live on the, on the threshold of the unlimited, and you have to be able to live with that. Because you'll never go, you will never be capable of it. Hmm. Now, in small ways, sometimes you have more of a sense of it. Just to be, as you say, out on the porch when it's still dark, or to be able to see the stars in the distance, um, that opens up a wonder. But then, for how long can you stay in that state of wonder? You know, you just kind of move in and, and out of it. Well, uh, she's a, a poet of solitude, and that's the thing that intrigued me. Um, I mean, Merton, of course, is a poet of solitude, and I was, uh, you know, from early days, I was reading his poetry. <clears throat> but uh, I thought, well, he's, she's not, he's not the only one. I should start exploring. And, uh, of 
course, she's noted for, you know, staying in her house though, most of her life. And um, then I went on to Reiner Rilke, uh, who is another poet of solitude. Uh, Whitman in his own way is, um, I haven't gotten that much into Whitman, but um, so that, that's the thing that attracted me. And I find that she's very monastic. Yeah. Uh, you know, the thing that uh, almost everybody knows that poem, I am nobody, who are you? Are you nobody too? Ah, then there's a pair, a pair of us. Don't tell, though I advertise you know. How dreary to be somebody. How public, like a frog, to tell your name the live long June to an admiring bog. Hmm. So, so she could say, I am nobody, who are you? And of course, that's where I got amounting to nothing. It comes along the same vein. But then as I explored, of course, I found more and more riches, uh, more of a trove of wealth uh, about the, well, you know, she writes about nature and people know her nature poems, but they don't really know that much about her, her, her poems about the mind and about the soul and about immortality and things like that. So she was, she was operating on two fronts. I have a chapter uh, in my memoir about um, uh, a, love, uh, a love affair with Emily Dickinson. <laughs> um, Beautiful. Yeah, so it's, um, it's sometimes the borders on the, uh, the mystical, I think. I th definitely think she was a contemplative. And uh, the thing that first emerged that struck me uh, and convinced me I had to do more reading was this poem that uh, goes like this. He fumbles at your soul like players at the keys. Before they put full music on, he stunned you by degrees, prepares your brittle nature for that ethereal blow with fainter hammers further heard than so slow. Your brain has time to straighten, your blood to bubble cool. Deals one imperial thunderbolt that scalps your naked soul when winds take forests in their paws, the universe is still. And I thought, wow. <laughs> I said, I've got to look into this gal. <laughs> I had read a lot before that, but that's the one that sort of told me it's, it's time to get to work. And so I read a little bit of her every day, three or four mm. poems. and. Uh, try to memorize um, ones that I just have to memorize. Mm. Give myself the time to do that. Was it Thomas Merton that kind of uh, gave you invitation to find fascination and wonder in poetry? Oh, well, um, I was, yeah, because he was finding it himself. And so just by seeing him do it, uh, I was, you know, 
and follow through. Um, he didn't make a point of it. Now he's, he was saying a monk should be able to read poetry. Uh, he, uh, you can't read scripture, you can't read the prophets or the Psalms unless you can read poetry. So mm -hmm. the, the, it all kind of goes together with the living a uh, monastic life with uh, all your fa fa faculties. Mm -hmm. Rilke talked about how life is always right. You know, if you just let it be, you just have to trust that life is constantly speaking truth if you just let it. You know, if you're continually obsessed with uh, achieving a goal, and uh, getting something accomplished and fulfilling your ambitions. Uh, it, it's all coming from yourself. It's uh, coming or from the necessities of life or, or from the pressure of your environment or from your job or what your boss expects of you. Um, all those things are inevitable, but they're, each one of them is a kind of a trap uh, or you can mm. let it be a trap. So you, you need to get past a, you know, another level of experience, you know, another level of life. And uh, some people get that maybe on their vacations, but then a, a vacation becomes another goal to achieve. You know, I, I pack up, I drive off to the national park and uh, we, we act like we're having fun for a while. And maybe you really are, but then it, it comes to an end, you got to pack up again and get back home. Well, um, that's all, you know, uh, well and good, and it's perhaps necessary, but, you know, you shouldn't have to go through all that rigmarole in order to just have a quiet moment where you're, you're free and open, and it can happen right here and now. Mm. So I think the key to it all is to live in the moment to be able to re re release yourself to the moment mm. and that's um that's the practice of meditation i, I think that's what uh, if meditation is nothing more than that it's fruitful even though it may not be seen it seemed to be fruitful uh yeah. for me meditation is simply to ab abide in the moment even though nothing seems to be happening there and um, my meditation seems to be more and more of that uh, to an extent that uh, it's, you know, um, I kind of wonder. And of course, my, uh, my current state of, of writing is like, except for the prose that I'm writing, I don't really do much poetry anymore. And I think it might have something to do with, with the fact that um, I'm not... Uh, I'm not uh, really allowing that kind of um, nothingness to happen. I'm not allowing my own incapacity to be the gift of the moment. In other words, to find your own helplessness or to find your own lack of inspiration to simply have to be without drifting off on a chariot you know to, to some higher realm of existence that is a kind of discipline there's a spiritual discipline there a spiritual poverty which is really at the core of the spiritual life 
that's what it is to abide on the threshold of infinity. And I ran across this uh, passage from uh, um, uh, T.S. Eliot, which really kind of addresses that. Uh, uh, one has to, one has only learned to get the better of words for the thing one no longer has to say, or the way in which one no longer is disposed to say it. Mm. Wow. And, and that seems to be where I'm at right now. Uh, I'm not disposed to say anything. Um, I've gotten some accomplishment in writing, mm. but um, he goes on to say, so each venture is a new beginning, a raid on the inarticulate. Mm with shabby equipment always deteriorating in the general mess of imprecision of feeling. <laughs> <laughs> well, that seems to me my general state of existence. But see, he was able to make a poem out of it. You know, he simply had, all he had to do was to say what's actually happening. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's uh, timeless. It kind of reminds me a little bit about, um one of Alan Watts's whole concepts of how words just get in our way, you know, mm -hmm. like our yeah. just words in general are these definitions of trying to identify a thought or feeling or emotion or idea or whatever it may be. But there is something kind of this cosmological mystery of truth that is begging to speak to us in no words so in that case, you have to allow for the silence, you know, because the silence is where the fullness comes in. And uh, maybe silence has to be a matter of uh, weeks, months, or years. Uh, that's um, not always your choice. You have yeah. to come to that point. And, and I think um, I might be at that point now to some extent. I mean, it, no, I mean, I didn't. I went through the first uh, 30 years or more of my life without writing and then I started writing little by little more and more and right now I've got two books uh, in the docs to be published um, there's going to be a, a collection uh, hopefully this year uh, out of Okta publish, publishing in, in Chicago called uh, see the moment savor the moment that will be a collection of 40 poems and 40 photographs. Do you have any sort of benediction of sorts? Well, the, the present moment is the benediction. It is yes. the benediction, you know, and to be able to spend this time together and uh, to just kind of freely drift from one thing to another. Uh, you, you don't take a linear approach to this, do you? <laughs> no, I can't. I can't. <laughs> you can't. I can't if I tried. Yeah, well, neither neither could I. Well, I suppose I could if I if I tried that. But uh, no, it's good. It's uh, good to be with you, and uh, um, it's been so long. I mean, I'm, you're entering into my space, and I'm entering into your space uh, in, in a new way. So uh, um, let's thank God for it, mm. and yes. uh, you're you're a gift to me. Ah. Oh. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Paul. Likewise. Um, 
I feel fortunate to know you. And I, I think very often of when that uh, opportunity will come again for me to just show up unannounced at your monastery and spend the day um, traipsing across the fields and just finding wonder and awe and the littlest, most unnoticeable things. If, if uh, you know, you just des- decide you have a goal in mind. I, I, I so I, I love, I love those days and they're always magical. They're always just full of wonder, mystery, surprise, the unknown. And I just can't wait for that day to come again. Okay. Thanks so much, yeah, Brother Paul. God bless you. Thanks for listening, everyone. For more information about Brother Paul and his two most recent books, In Praise of the Useless Life and Amounting to Nothing, you can find them most places books are sold. For more information on the Abbey of Gethsemane, visit monks.org. If you like what you hear, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and leave a review. Peace to you until then, and bye-bye for now.